I want to play a game. <laughs> you stole cupcake. You stole my intro. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Will you shed your podcast duties to save your own life? Anyway. Friends and listeners, you have watched you have watched Skip Plus in your ears, and as you can tell, uh, we're maybe a little excited to review the new horror film Saw X or Saw Ten. Am I calling it Saw X, Jason? Oh, X? Hell yes, Saw Jason X. 10, Saw, Saw X, X baby. Okay, Saw X. Saw X all the way. Uh, X gonna but, give it to you. <laughs> X gonna give it to you. To you in your trap. Give it. Put you in the trap. Um, okay. <laughs> Bingo. We're singing. Okay, so. Let's do our intro proper for the show. This is Watch Skip Plus, friends and listeners. You know, you know, we review streaming and new theatrical films. But before that, we also have a plus. So each of us is going to give you that plus, that little trap. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the, the extra bonus review, which can be anything, anything out of life or anything that stuck with us since our last recording. I'm joined by my co-host, Justin, the Cinemasochist, also known as Justin the Red. I am Cupcake, also known as Machine Gun Jelly. Red, how are you? <laughs> Red is doing okay because he survived his trap, but now it is your turn, Jose. Each week, <laughs> you and your podcast partner decide the fate of films. Films that take many man hours and labors of love, and yet you so callously have decided some of them aren't worth viewing. Well, you are currently trapped to your chair. Attached to your eyelids are flypaper. You are, must watch all of the movies that you have skipped and give positive reviews to them. You are strapped to a lie detector. If you cannot give genuine, good, positive vibes, the flypaper on your eyelids will rip the eyelids off, meaning you must watch films like Expendables 4 forever. Oh watch my your, god. Watch your skip. The choice is yours. <laughs> You're, you're, here's your podcast partner, Cinemascus, who survived this in like two seconds. He, he likes these bad movies. I don't get it. Hey, what's up, Jose? I'm doing all right. <laughs> I didn't care that you were... I was going through with this anyway. <laughs> you, have, you have survived the jigsaw trap. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, so uh, we, are, we are doing Saw X. I'm actually curious. I am dying because I had listened to... Wild Dream podcast review of It Lives Inside. And I know you liked it. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not like the best thing in the world. And I know Randy was like, dang, it was uh, very, you know, well-made, suspenseful or whatever. But Daniel and David were like, this is the worst fucking movie ever. Wow. Uh, it was I a huge epic takedown. And it was very, the whole episode is very, very funny. But I, I haven't seen it yet, but let's just say it, it dialed down the enthusiasm for me. I mean, I I wasn't like I said to you. I wasn't absolutely crazy about it. It is at, on its surface a pretty generic horror film, but I think one, as Rain said, I think it's very well made. Uh, I like the performances, and I think using the Hindi mythology gave it a, a, enough of a fresh flavor to it. So mm. I can understand not liking it, but man, hating it. I haven't gotten to listen to that episode. Obviously, now I, now you got to check it out. But uh, you gotta. It's um, it's hysterical. I love those guys. They. So they primarily had just indicated that like it's very amateurish, um, not well made, and that uh, it follows the sort of the plotline of like The Ring and Smile 
that kind of thing. Yeah, so. it, it follows the plot line very familiar. Uh, Wild Dream Podcast, you say that films are amateurish, but now you must decide. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm, they've made shorts, so I think I think they're going to survive that trap. Okay, um, but I'm curious to hear. I, they're they're also doing like a, a Spooktober sort of thing, um, and so I'm curious if they review Saw X, what their feelings are going to be. Uh, but before that, obviously, we have uh, pluses. So, Red, I turn it over to you for your plus. Well, as you said, it is Spooktober, the spooky season. I know it's spooky season year-round for us horror fanatics. But since it is proper, that means spirit Halloweens have cropped up. And I went to mine that opened up, and I caved. The first time I went, I saw it. I saw an item I wanted to buy, and I was like, man, it's only $90. But I was like, ah, I don't know if I can do this. I even texted you, Jose. But then uh, I got in the mail a 20% off coupon. And I was like, they want me to do this. So, And I went back to the Spirit Halloween and I kept eyeing this thing up and I kept walking away thinking, ah, I'm not going to do it. But I, I was like, I, I came for this. So I, I took this item up to the, the register. I gave them my 20% off coupon. I got this after taxes down to $75. And folks, I now own a good guy doll. That is right. I own a Chucky doll. Not one yes! where you're all stitched up. It, it looks like the, the one from the first film. Uh, probably, if you really put it up against the movies, it probably looks slightly different, but enough that it still looks great, um, especially for so cheap. Uh, one of the reasons that it is cheap, outside of obviously not being one of the, the bigger, I think, trick-or-treat studios replicas, is that most of it, obviously the head, the feet, and the hands are plastic, like in a doll. Everything out is just stuffed, which may be a little too overstuffed, but hey, for somebody who, who's been wanting to get one of these for a while, but it's like I'm not plunking down a couple hundred bucks, especially because then I won't take it out of the box. And for me, I want the damn thing out of the box and to sit with it. Um, yeah, this was this was great. Uh, I know Harry from Death by DVD. Uh, he had actually thought when I was posting a photo, it was like, is that the Trick or Treat Studios one? I'm like, no, this is just whatever, uh, I guess, Spirit Halloween itself, because I think it's branded as theirs. So he went and got that. They also had a Glendale, and I didn't grab that, and that was cheaper, like 70 But... I now might want to go back because if it did not sell out, according to him, his sold out and they're going for a couple hundred online already. So, wow. Obviously, the Chuckies aren't because there's many of those, but I guess there's not that many Glenn dolls. And I'm as a big seed of Chucky fan, as I mentioned, living with Chucky, I'm happy to see people are actually caring about Glenn or Glenda, you know. But yes. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very happy about it. You're going to see this prop up on our uh, Instagram page. I will share it uh, if I haven't before this recording drops into your ear holes. But yeah, if, you, if you've <laughs> been wanting to get a Chucky doll and, you know, $90 or – and honestly, you can just look up online. Those Spirit Halloween, uh, the 20% off is not hard to find. So you can go get a Chucky doll for $75. Bucks. Uh, Shadow was a little hesitant at first, but he kind of <laughs> likes it. Uh, it was funny though, because at one point, you know, he was walking up the stairs just to go lay down, and then he saw me grab the Chucky doll, and he got all jealous. So, uh, but it is it is funny though, because I, I messaged my mother this this doll, and I said, "Man, could you imagine telling the child me who is terrified of our neighbor's Chucky doll that he's going to willingly buy one as an adult?" And she goes, "Yeah, it's crazy." So wow. that's my plus. Happy Spooktober. Psst, shadow. Rip its eyes out. <laughs> <laughs> he was looking. There's a photo I took and I, I put on. I, I think it was also on my Instagram. But I put on my socials and it looks like he's about to tag the damn thing. You should you should post that. Also, maybe before the release of this episode, I'll post the Chucky Norris meme that I sent Oh, yes. You, which is a little alarming, but a little. Um, but I will I, I will say this. I would definitely watch 
a Chucky versus Chucky Norris movie. Yes. I would absolutely watch that. The Chucky Force missing in Ch- Chucky in action, maybe. I'm trying to think of Invasion Chucky, Chucky Invasion USA. Chucky, yes. <laughs> Chucky Texas Ranger. Oh, <laughs> yes. There it is. There it is. Chucky Texas Ranger. We got it. That's that's. I want to see him in the count. Cal- uh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. So my, I was, I was rolling over another cupcake story time as a, as a plus, um, about basically what you and I had discussed about my fear of leaving, my fear of leaving food or groceries unattended out of fear that somebody would poison them. Um, yes, yes, folks. I, I grew up, uh, with OCD and anxiety and I had, uh, things that I would repeat in my head and little rituals and stuff like that. I, I'm a little better now. If my coworkers are listening, this is this is why you will hear me counting as I walk out of the office. Um, it's nothing to worry about. I'm fine. But I think I'm going to go with something a little more standard, which is in keeping with my green and sort of environmental and sustainable theme of, you know, makeup or whatever things are, are, are good for the environment. Um, I purchased a... Uh, sort of messenger or laptop bag from a company that is sustainable and ethical. Um, for the longest time, I love messenger bags just because, you know, with their sort of expandable volume, I can put in my laptop and all my files and all my junk and my, you know, calendar and stuff like that. And it's easy to tote around. But I was getting a little tired of my Timbuktu messenger bag because it had like a quick release strap so that if you just like pulled the little lever, like it just automatically just opened up and it was easy to take off of your person. But the problem was, is as I would, uh, you know, put it over my shoulders, the quick release would just kind of come off. And the next thing I know, it's it's down by like my ass and I'm like waddling around. <laughs> um, so I was looking for a sustainable and a green option, something that didn't hurt the environment, that wasn't plasticky. And I came across a company called Corker, which is spelled C, <laughs> yes, C-O-R-K-O-R. Um, it's a corker. It is a corker indeed. Um, so Corker, this interesting company, it's founded by Natalia and Vitor. They live in Portugal. And what they have discovered is that cork is a pretty amazing, sustainable, and green fabric. And the reason why it's fantastic and green is because the the cork is actually taken from the bark of the cork tree. And even when they sort of harvest the bark, it's not like you're taking the tree down completely. Um, it'll grow back. And so cork is this amazing sort of resource. I don't know why it's not in more things, but... Um, so every time a cork tree is actually harvested, the, the um, bark that's taken off, it actually absorbs more CO2 to aid in the bark's regeneration process. So as you all know from your uh, high school science that trees basically help to produce oxygen, but they also take up the CO2. And lo and behold, even when you harvest the bark, it actually does more than what it would normally do. And you're not chopping down the trees. Um, 
their company is made to order. So it's direct to consumer. It's all handmade. It's all built to last. They work in conjunction with the Ford Stewardship Council certification. And you, it's 100% vegan and animal free. So it's, it's a perfect bag. And you get to run around and tell people that it's made of fine Corinthian leather. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, made of, it's made of Portuguese harvested cork. Um, uh, maybe I'll put a link in the show notes, but I absolutely love this bag. Um, and I'm quite taken with it. They make belts and wallets and accessories. So check it all out. It's very, it's very fantastic. And it feels, it feels almost leather, like something between like say leather and a synthetic fabric, but it's, it, it, it looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. Mm. But believe it or not, I actually have heard of this. I caught a review of it online that said its bark is worse than its bite. Wah, wah. <laughs> no, this is the first time I obviously heard of this. I just wanted to make that <laughs> shitty pun. Uh, but yeah, that sounds really cool. I, I, it's weird that it, it took this long for a company to kind of think of doing that. Like, why don't we just take the bark and, you know, go yeah. from there instead of just taking the whole damn tree? Yeah, I would. Um, so yet again... Because I ended up in the legal career, my legal field, uh, the legal field, once again, I had I had designs on being a fashion designer. And um, when I ended up going to University of Maryland College Park, I the year that I entered freshman year was the year that they cut off people entering the fashion design program. Because mm. they actually had a really great fashion design program. But there was like an estoppel, like I, I couldn't join that program. Um, but I live for recyclable clothing um, or green and sustainable clothing. The problem is, is it, it, it costs double or triple what you would pay for something that was made in a factory or made out of cotton. And so I always had these dreams about going back to fashion school um, and specifically design and textiles and then just trying to find things like cork and then making cheap and affordable sustainable clothing because it's what's going to save our world man yeah and, uh yeah and i so get if you why... all want to con- if you all want to contribute to my gofundme to send me back to fashion school <laughs> you can certainly do it you can send it to watch skip no i'm just kidding Go ahead. <laughs> do it do it uh, but yeah it's, I, I understand why these these items would be more expensive because it probably costs a lot more especially if they're not getting the funding but it, it becomes a double-edged sword because the only way to, to really make these successful, like you said, is to make them cheap and affordable. Because if not, the general public that can't afford the more expensive items are going to be like, well, I'm just going to go with the cheaper item. And that's how we get into this vicious cycle. So hopefully as time moves on, uh, we get more and more affordable uh, green items. And I think that'll happen. Just hopefully it'll be soon enough. Yeah. I mean, I've got this harness that's made out of <laughs> recycled. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm joking. I really don't have the harness, although I know some of our listeners are like, yeah, Jose's got that. But Jose, anyway. you were trapped to a harness. In order to save the planet, you must first save yourself. <laughs> With this dildo from the seven. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, you saw the salt porno too? On <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So that brings us to Saw X. Uh, aka saw 10 and i'm going to start with some of the below the line and uh bear with me i am actually trying to truncate this because i'm pretty sure i end up sounding like white noise to some listeners which is why we include our timestamps. okay but all right so saw 
X is the 10th film in the red long running franchise. Yes, we have more than five. <laughs> more than five and uh, the length of which we, we had these. These have been going on for almost two, what, 18 years, I think now. Yeah, eight, yes. no, 19 years, actually. What am I saying? Yeah. 19, because the first one was 2004. Yes. So 20 if you count the short. Exactly. Uh, so one of the more enduring horror franchises up there with, say, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, etc. Um, Saw was the brainchild of Aussies James Wan and Lee Whannell, who we've mentioned on previous podcasts because we've reviewed films that they've either produced or written. Insidious, The Red Door, I'm looking at you, although not really because I hated you. Um, after writing the script and even producing a short in, tw- in 2003, so that they could get the film made, Saw premiered at Sundance in 2004 in an unrated and sort of unfinished, uncolor-timed print, and it built the kind of buzz that studios kill for, literally. And so eventually, Saw was a success, and it became a seasonal treasure in some ways, as the sequels would always be released around Halloween time. Red, do you remember... The, the taglines that was uh, that read like it's Halloween it must be Saw yeah no if it's Halloween it must be Saw oh exactly we're gonna, you're gonna learn from my review I've got a strong nostalgia for this franchise oh my God so do I anyway the primary draws for these films in addition to Tobin Bell actor Tobin Bell's fantastic presence as John Kramer aka Jigsaw who is a serial killer although technically he's not a serial killer because what he does is he puts people he tests and pushes the will and boundaries of those that he feels are unworthy of their lives and obviously the primary draw for all of these films are the quote-unquote traps or these elaborately engineered scenarios that involve the unworthy harming themselves to potentially escape the traps and spoiler alert, there's literally a 2% success rate of, of escaping these things. So just to let you know, uh, the first film set up the premise and the character of John Kramer, while the sequels sequels have all taken kind of a, a non-linear way that winds in and out of the first film's events, sort of retconning, or uh, for those of you not familiar with that term, retroactive continuity. Um and, and just sort of retconning the timeline and introducing new characters, some of whom are later revealed, spoiler uh, a little bit, to be apprentices or disciples of John Kramer. And I mean, how can one man do all of this? And obviously, that's how they built those apprentice characters. So Saw's, Saw's 1 through 6 um, were released after 2004. In 2010, Saw 7, which was called Saw 3D, the final chapter, was designed to obviously be the last one. But in Hollywood, and especially in the horror genre, there is never a final chapter. Just ask Freddy and Jason Voorhees. Um, It should also be noted that this film series has featured some very, very notable actors. And in a way, it's been a showcase of some really, really great Canadian actors and performers. So just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of like Dina Meyer, Julie Benz, Peter Outerbridge, 
Um, you know, just these fantastic Canadian actors that have come through. Donald Wahlberg was in it as well. That's Donnie Wahlberg um, for y'all, the uninformed. <laughs> when did he ever go by Donald? I like He that. never did. He never he did. I also, I also call Mark Wahlberg Marcus Wahlberg because – Anyway, we won't talk about uh, I still call him yeah. Marky Mark. He's always Marky Mark. Uh, of course. That funchy bunch. The funky, funchy bunch? Funky bunch. <laughs> I just, I just the, the quirky funchy. bunch. Uh, <laughs> the funnyan uh, bunch. Uh, in 2017, interest in reviving the franchise was peaked, and the release of Jigsaw came, which was essentially Saw 8. In 2021, so, uh, you know, However long that is from 2017, I can't do math in the morning. Um, Saul got a rebirth from superfan Chris Rock. Yes, that Chris Rock, who pitched and scripted a thriller involving Jigsaw, because apparently he loves the Saul franchise. And that actually brought back director Darren Lynn Bozeman to the franchise, who had directed Saw 2, 3, and 4. And that film was called Spiral with the subtitle From the Book of Saw. Well, apparently it's canon because if you add up all the films, Spiral was number nine. And that brings us to Saw X. Now, when you have these horror franchises, what ends up happening is that the writers and directors and the below the line personnel kind of waltz in and out almost like a revolving dinner plate of service. Um yeah, weird analogy. I don't know why I chose that. But Saw is unique in the respect that they have kind of kept it in the family. So there have been a number of consistent below-the-line personnel that have worked on the series and sequels as as the franchise has gone on. So, for example, 1L and Juan, they wrote the storylines for Saw's 1 through 3. Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan, they're responsible for writing Saw's 5 through 3D. Saw 5's director, David Hackle, was actually the production designer for Saw's 2, 3, and 4. And that actually brings us to the director of this film, Kevin Groydert. He is Saw family, considering that he has been the editor of the film series since inception, moving up the line to actually direct Saw 6 and 7, and then, of course, Directing this is a little bit of a homecoming. Um, he has actually worked on every single Saw film, not just in an editing capacity, but he's also gotten EP credit on Spiral. He has edited horror films like Room 6, The Strangers, and the recent Uma, which we actually mentioned on the podcast because we chose to watch the mean one instead of seeing Uma when Red visited us, which was a, a good poor, choice. Poor oh, choice. choice. You Best make your choice. choice. You make the choice, Red. Um, um, your podcast partner quickly said how much he loved the mean one. It was really weird. Even I was like, dude, this one? Seriously? <laughs> um, Greutert has also directed the Bloomhouse films Jessable and Visions, which both sit unwatched on my Netflix list, my huge Netflix list. Curiously enough, Greutert was actually slated to write and direct Paranormal Activity 2 until the production company for this film uh, pulled a contract sort of issue with him and he was forced off the project and brought back to direct um, Saw uh, 3D, actually. Yes. Um, our writers are Josh Stolberg and Pete Goldfinger. Again, they are Saw family because they scripted Jigsaw and Spiral. They frequently write together and started on shows like Avatar The Last Airbender. Stolberg has written the films Good Luck Chuck and the 2012 remake of Crawl Space, while the duo has written the horror film reimaginings Piranha 3D and Sorority Row. 
Our music is by Charlie Closer. Clouser. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I think um, it's Clouser. I think. Okay. That's how I've always pronounced it, but I could be wrong. Got it. And he is um, also Saw royalty because he scored every single one of the Saw films. Notably, he is a producer, composer, and music artist. He actually was the keyboardist in a little band called Nine Inch Nails. Actually, it's kind of funny how it's kind of funny how those members <laughs> Red just like was rubbing his beard like <laughs> like pie like Pime from Kill Bill. <laughs> and I don't really know why either, considering it, was, <laughs> it wasn't anything that justified it, just him being a nine inch nails, but I was like, <laughs> nine inch justified. Nails. We'll call that you justifying things when you rub your beard now. Me, That's another justifying thing. Justifying, thing. Justin <laughs> exactly. Oh, Lord, the puns, Lord. The p- we're going to put your puns in a trap is what we're going to do. Yeah, but um, but nonetheless, uh, Charlie Clouser was in Nine Inch Nails. Again, I was going to note how it's, it's weird that Trent Reznor has also moved on to composing as well. But he has worked with Lee Wannell and James Wan before he scored Dead Silence and Death Sentence. He's also done other films like Resident Evil Extinction and The Stepfather. Um, but again, Saw Royalty, he's uh, scored all of them. And little, little known fact, we're just going to say this. When he scored the first film... There is a track at the end called Hello Zep, um, which uh, was about one of the characters. But it was the the music that eventually became the Saw theme because they really he really didn't create a theme. But because that that little clip was used in the trailers, just even as a temp track, they were like, damn it, we like this. And it became the Saw theme. Yeah, it's, um, a, it's a bop. It is. And actually, now that now that Red is actually doing a somewhat great <laughs> um, reiteration of what that sounds like, I have always said this, and listeners, you can write in and tell me I'm insane, but I feel like Paul McCartney maybe should sue Charlie Clouser for uh, trademark infringement, because if you listen to Live and Let Die and some of the music, mm-hmm. I feel like that re- that repeating three-note thing... It sounds I, a lot like I Hello wouldn't be Zap. surprised if it's popped up elsewhere because that's just as much as movies tend to recycle a lot of plots as we discussed with It Lives Inside. Sure. Music yeah. is very known for that. I forget there is one key that has been repeated more than any other uh of song. Course. So of course. But yeah, but also, now that you say it, I can see it. Yeah, but it also reminds me of like just just it, I mean it's a it's a it's a music thing. I'm not a I'm not a music artist or a composer, but it's the way that uh, Mark Snow created the X Files theme. He was just like, mm-hmm. "What can we have that's simple? That's repeating, you know." Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I can't even do it. I can't do it like <laughs> I can't do it like Red. I'm terrible at this. Um, okay, so our DP is Nick Matthews. He was born in the American South. Um, he has also shot the erotic horror film Bone Lake, which Ooh. certainly sounds like an erotic horror film. Yeah, that, that sounds like it's got some DP going on in it. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to need to get that in my <laughs> eyeballs. Um, oh, okay. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, he has also worked with uh, Dan Myrick and Ted Raimi, um, who starred in Red Light, which premiered at the prestigious horror festival in Sight- Sightgez. Sightgez? I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. 
it's a it's a country or a city. I'm not sure. <laughs> I was terrible at geography, by the way. Um, he's also shot music videos for like Ice Cube and and Rise Against, as well as done commercials. So, uh, pretty good uh, DP to look forward to. I mean, I actually really really love the look of this film. So uh, happy to have this man on board. Hopefully, we can see him doing more things. One last thing. Keeping it in the family, Twisted Pictures, uh, who, by the way, has a newfangled uh, intro icon for this film, which I rather quite like. They added blood streaks to the words Twisted Pictures versus just cuts that were in there before. Um, <clears throat> but Twisted Pictures, the studio behind this film, that was created by Greg Hoffman, um, Mark Berg, and Oren Coles. Incidentally, Coles did a little bit of a cameo in the first Saw film. He is the guy that Sonny Smith has to cut through to get the key to open the reverse bear trap. Um, but Twisted Pictures grew out of their former studio called Evolution Entertainment, which also produced the TV series Two and a Half Men. Sadly, Greg Hoffman passed away oh. while they were making Saw Three and the Crawl Space remake, which one of the writers also wrote. He has had posthumous producer credits on all of the Saw films, except this one, which is super odd to me. I don't know why that happened. But again, keeping it in the family, Twisted Pictures, they are responsible for all of Saw. And I was over, actually yeah. going to ask, is that why they called the character Detective Hoffman uh, from some of the later sequels? And now that you're saying he passed after three, I I think that's pretty much, I mean, it could be a coincidence, but I feel like that's kind of a homage. Yeah. Yeah. Ding, 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 bingo. Uh, and and speaking of which, over to you for the cast. Yay, for the cast. So, well, I do want to say it is fitting that, you know, you keep saying how this is staying in the family uh, because another horror franchise called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of its recurring taglines is the Saw is family, but that's a franchise where most people just kind of went in and out. Yet here we have a franchise called Saw that actually is family. So that's kind of nice. Anywho, yes. <laughs> uh, as you had said, there's a lot of returning elements and there are two cast members that are returning for Saw X. This is a prequel sequel. I don't know how the hell you want to call it. It takes place between the events of Saw 1 and 2, which is why uh, Tobin Bell gets to return as John Kramer, a.k.a. Jigsaw, uh, and not in just flashback form, because even though he was... Spoiler alert for, I guess, the rest of the franchise. You're on the review of the 10th film. We're going to have to. He gets effectively killed off at the end of 3, but keeps coming back in flashbacks <laughs> and pretty yes. much all the other installments. So this is one where we didn't have to have those flashbacks. He is a very noted character actor, but he really didn't break out as he has now until the Saw franchise, because he would originally appear in films such as Mississippi Burning, An Innocent Man, Loose Cannons, Goodfellas, Boiling Pro Point, The Firm, In the Line of Fire, Malice, Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead, uh, and Black Mask 2. But for a lot of these movies, especially some of those bigger films like In the Line of Fire, he had very small roles. He stood out, but he never even got to rise towards like supporting uh, for a lot of these, which I always think is unfortunate. But after Saul became such a huge hit and a big reason was his terrific performance, he ended up becoming kind of a horror icon and ended up working a lot more in horror films going into films such as decoys 2, boogeyman 2 and some of its other subsequent sequels manson family vacation 12 feet deep the call he has a recurring role in the recent the flash series as well as appearing in a lot of shows such as csi law and order and whatnot and funny that you mentioned the x-files uh he did appear in an episode of the x-files and i think because we love this show and we referenced it a lot anytime that i see that with any of the cast members i'm going to try to remember to bring that up 
up. So yeah. he gets to return here as Jigsaw, even though he's outside of Spiral, has been in all of them. This is still being sold as the return of Jigsaw because you're not just getting in flashback forms. Joining yeah, great, him. In- great, great character actor. Also, 100%. I'm just going to say it. I think he's really sexy. Yeah, you um, know what? He's, he's certainly older in this film, but he, I just, I think he's really hot. He's, you know what? I, we were texting about this and I think he has a kind of a smolder to him. Cause he, especially in these movies, he has a controlled menace and we'll get to that. But I think he, he also has a sweetness to him. And even when you see him, he was still older, but younger than he was now in films like in the line of fire. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a presence to him. That makes him very attractive. Uh, very appealing. Very, uh, very. Absolutely. Another person who I think is very attractive, even though I did not like her hairstyle in this, uh, is Shawnee Smith returning <laughs> as Amanda Young. She is a former trap survivor turned apprentice of John Kramer, a.k.a. Jigsaw. That was the twist in Saw 2, and this is already kind of showing that we know of that. Uh, she would have started making her name in the 80s in films such as Iron Eagle, Summer School, the excellent blob remake from uh, Chuck Russell. Amen. Who's Harry Who's Harry Crumb with John Candy, the Desperate Hours remake with, I believe that was Mickey Rourke, uh, Leaving Las Vegas, Armageddon, the Carnival of Souls TV remake from the late 90s, which I think Wes Craven might have produced, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, Breakfast, right. of Champ- Breakfast of Champions with Bruce Willis, uh, Michael Bay's The Island. Uh, she would also then start getting a more horror work again, uh, such as The Grudge 3, as well as appearing in the miniseries for both The Stand and then The Shining, that being the miniseries that uh, had more involvement from Stephen King and starred uh, Stephen Weber. Uh, she had a recurring role, I think, for 155 episodes, I believe. I think she was in the entire series of Becker. And she also appeared in an episode of The X-Files, as well as appearing in a lot of other shows. Yep. Uh, so those two are the two that I'm going to mention as, as being returning. Uh, and then joining the cast are, are four main victims. So I'm only going to focus on them uh, that are setting these traps. And they are Sinov Makodi Lund. Hopefully I didn't mispronounce that. As Cecilia Peterson. She is a Norwegian actress appearing in films such as Headhunters, Haunted, and The Girl in the Spider's Web. But as uh, work on the long-run series Acquitted, Black Widows, Ragnarok, and Riviera. And just so you know, folks, I when I was making this last slide, Last night, I was tired after work, and I couldn't think of the word for what somebody from Norway is, so I just wrote Norway actress, and then it hit me this morning, like, Norwegian, you dunce. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what are they called in Norway, Norwegians? <laughs> uh, so I, thought, I, I, I point you to a previous episode where I called somebody <laughs> Netherlandian. Yeah, so, so I, that's, there you I go. Almost, I almost kept it, because I remembered that, and I was like, hey, we all have this slip of the minds, especially when we're making some of these lists. Also, uh, she's and, super gorgeous. Yeah, very gorgeous. Uh, was like, hello, lady. Yeah, she, you know what? I think I probably, I haven't really seen any of these shows or movies, but I know we've seen the trailer for Girl in the Spider's Web, so maybe I've seen that. But I was just like, the whole time, I'm like, why do I know her? Oh, if you, haven't, if you haven't seen Headhunters, you need to. I think you it's streaming no, on like I 2B. am a liar. That is yeah. what I did see. Uh, once I forgot, I was thinking of Mindhunters, for, which I've also seen that. But yeah, I do remember I did see it. I haven't seen it since it came out. And like, they're like, I think it was yeah. 2011, 2012 here. But that's probably where I recognize her from. But it was kind of like that Sasha Kale thing where it was like, I feel like there's something more recent I saw you in. And it's clearly somebody else. And I don't know who it was then. So right. it'll come to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the remaining three actors are all uh, Spanish actors, uh, so they've done a lot of Spanish productions down in Mexico since this does take place down in Mexico. Uh, but they have a couple of 
titles that I can pronounce and you might be familiar with, starting with Renata Vaca as Gabriella. Uh, two films that she's been in are History Lessons and This Is Not a Comedy, which I have a feeling probably is a comedy. Uh, but on top of a lot of the Spanish productions, the one that she had the most recurring fame with is Rosario Tierras. I probably mispronounced that, but it's the closest I'm going to get. Uh, portraying Mateo is Octavio Hino. Hino Jose, 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 fuck, I really, I, I butchered that, but Hino Jose, uh, he has been in films such as Come Play With Me, but is more known in Juzga, but is more known for his series work, such as Narcos Mexico, and I'm not going to butcher any more of these Spanish shows, but a lot of Spanish productions uh, and telenovelas. And then super cute, his- super cute. Very cute. And then playing Valentina is Paulette Hernandez. That's one I can easily pronounce, thankfully. Uh, she is in films such as Tales of Mexico, Leaf Lower, Forward, and Dementia, and Perdida, or Perdida, as well as series such as Destino, and then I'm not going to butcher any more Spanish productions. No. Uh, and I'm going to keep it to that because these are uh, a lot of these Saw films, and this one in particular, are chamber pieces. Uh, <laughs> Which I guess so is to speak, considering yes, so to speak, <laughs> they're traps. So those are the the six that get the the most focus, and they're the ones that are in all the trailers. Um, which will take us then to our spoiler free thoughts, and I will we'll start with this. And as I mentioned, I have a nostalgia for this because you had fittingly mentioned Jose that you know this is a long running franchise in the vein of like a Freddy or especially of a Jason Voorhees of Friday Thirteenth because those seemingly came out every single year. Uh, and Saul did. Uh, starting from 2004 up until 2010, there was one every Halloween until they, you know, uh, 6-1 unfortunately underperformed because of stricter comp- uh, competition from paranormal activity that they couldn't see coming. And my nostalgia comes from these, these came out, especially the sequels, when I was in high school. Uh, starting with Saul 2, 2 through, I guess, what, 5 or 6 at that point, would have been me in high school. And I remember these were big with even the non-horror crowd. It's very funny to me that even those that don't like horror movies seem to gravitate towards this. And I can get it to a degree because these do have like a lot of twists in that. So there's a thriller suspense aspect. But while we as horror fans have definitely seen gorier movies, for a straight-laced normal person who does not like horror or slashers, it's really bizarre that they would gravitate. Like, I have a friend who loves horror, and her sister, the only horror movies she has seen and will rewatch are the Saw movies. I'm like, I don't get that, because how do these not freak you out more, considering they're pretty grisly? Yeah. But yeah, these these transcended pop culture, and I got into it. I, I you know, I was knee deep into my love of horror by the time the first one came out. For some reason, I did not see the first in theater, but I've seen all the sequels. And I have no idea why I didn't see the first in theaters because I was seeing the horror movies regularly with friends and my father who loves them. I saw most of the sequels up until the final chapter with my dad in the theater. That was our big thing each year. So I have no idea why we waited until it hit DVD. It it played in enough theaters that I I can't imagine it wasn't. I know it played in mine because a friend of mine had saw it. So, Pun, pun. So I don't know why I didn't see the first one in theaters, but I fell in love with it when when it hit video, and I I've been with this franchise ever since. Even some of the lesser ones, you know, maybe your Saw Fives or you know Jigsaw and Spiral, definitely, or lower on the totem pole. Even though I think I have a bit more of a softer spot for Jigsaw, even though it's probably one of the dumber ones once you get to the twist. Um, so with that, I had a lot of nostalgia going into this, and I definitely came out enjoying this. I've seen a lot of love for this, and I get why, but I do have a bit more of conflicting opinions on this, because for everything that this movie, I think, does right and arguably does better than most of the installments, especially the later ones, there's a 
couple of issues I have, and the one I'm just going to go with is the nagging one. I do think this has pacing issues. Uh, this is either the longest or second longest because this is right around the two-hour mark. The only other movie that hits that is Saw 3, which I remember thinking at the time even that was a little too long, but I understood why it was nearly two hours because you had multiple threads in that movie. You had That one had uh, John Kraber on his deathbed, so they abduct the nurse, so you have this pressure cooker of the nurse trying to save uh John Kramer, while you also have the person that's actually going through the traps, so you're cutting back to that, as well as cutting to the detectives, which includes flashbacks to different kind of traps. So I'm like, okay, that one makes sense to have three or two hours worth of content. This one is much more isolated and very personal. Uh, the, the plot being John Kramer, knowing that he only has months to live, learns uh, from a, uh, a fellow cancer survivor patient who is now seemingly doing well, who thought was terminal. Hey, there's this experimental... Uh, surgery going on down in Mexico. You should go there. They're going to cure you. Lo and behold, he realizes they didn't do shit. They just stole $250,000 from him. They didn't even cut him open. So he abducts them to put them into his trap so they can salvage themselves. And while I like the fact that this movie got away at first from the flashback narrative, because all of these movies, including the first one, well, maybe not so much the first one, but especially all of the sequels, they really tend to love some of these later ones, this flashback narrative where you start to see what's going on, like it'll open with the traps, and then you'll flash back to why they're in the traps and how Jigsaw and any of his apprentices got involved. This one doesn't really follow that. It's straightforward. It goes with him going down to Mexico, being cheated, then abducting these people. There's really not much of a flashback narrative. But since this thing I, th I felt took a little bit too long to get where it needed to go, I kind of thought, well, this would have been perfect just to have that flashback narrative. I'm glad they didn't quite go with it because I think what makes a lot of the build work is Tobin Bell. He's fantastic. And he definitely gets the most screen time. I think that he's gotten in any of these movies. And I think that was the right choice because he takes what is pretty simple material, you know, regurgitating his philosophy, sometimes in very humorous, dark comedies, such as telling uh, Celia Peterson, who is the head uh, doctor, uh, one of his hobbies now is uh, like being a life coach, which I, I got a big kick out of. And so did everyone in my theater. We all had a – and there's some more gallows humor that we're going to reveal in the spoilers section that I don't know if some of it I was meant to laugh at, but I think it was intentional. So he is great, but it does run into that issue of we know where this is going to go, not just because of obviously the trailer and it being a Saw movie, but – we know that he doesn't survive. He, he dies at the end of three because he has this cancer and that. So there is a little bit of that waiting for the shoe to drop that we've discussed in films like Insidious, the last chapter, uh, or sorry, Insidious. Now I'm getting my uh, movie. <laughs> Insidious, the red door. I don't think there was ever, there was a last key, but there wasn't a last chapter, but there was a last chapter for Saul and a final chapter for Friday the 13th. It's all confusing folks. And a first um, purge. And if no, we're not fucking going down that road again. <laughs> Saul, you see, at least this one, they're like, look, we're going to call it Saw X. Even if it's between Saw and Saw 2, we're not going to call it like Saw 0.5 or some shit and annoy you. Uh, <laughs> Anywho. But sorry. once it gets Continue. to them being abducted, I was fine with the slow pace for the most part. I actually, I think in hindsight, the reason I wish they could have gotten to them being locked up more is because since it's more personal, even though Billy the puppet comes in, uh, you know, Jigsaw and them, they pretty much go face to face and talk to them, but they also make their traps and their whole spot linger. So it's kind of similar to like Saw 2 or Saw 3 where some of the people have to kind of 
journey throughout, especially Jaw 2, uh, Saw 2. So you're not just getting, oh, here they're in their trap, three minutes, they're gone and out of here. And I wish we would have gotten a little bit more of their perspective of like being in that pressure cooker situation, arguing with each other. But this is a long-winded way of saying that while I still have issues with this film and some of it I have to wait until I get to the spoiler section, I still found this ultimately successful. I wish it was tighter. I think this would have been closer to 90 to 100 minutes. I would have liked it a lot more like other people did. But where its strengths lie is in some of those changes. The fact that it is still throwing in some of that uh, uh, jerky editing they have for the flashbacks, but mostly getting rid of that and having a much smoother editing uh, and and pacing to it, even if it does drag a bit and not just, I mean, Tobin Bell has always been great as well as Shawnee Smith. And like you said, there have been some good actors in these movies, especially as the princesses, but I will say this is probably the best acting all around for all of the, the victims. Uh, I felt their torture more than anyone else. And that says something too, considering uh, there's arguments always to be made of, well, who deserved to be in a salt trap and who didn't technically nobody deserves to be in a salt trap, no matter how terrible their actions were. That's what makes John Kramer so fascinating because he is a hypocrite. Yes, maybe he technically doesn't kill these people, but he would still be tried, if not for murder, for at least being apprentice because you're abducting these people and putting them into these mostly unwinnable traps. Like that's always been the point, though, is that he is a hypocrite who is whose mind is, you know, been warped. And in this one, they really teeter on the line of making him as sympathetic as possible. And you have these really detestable characters. And yet this was the one where I felt almost the most anguish for all of them. And I think it's because, unlike a lot of these other uh, installments, especially the later ones, most of that editing where they get the really like the quick cuts and all of that to really so it's to hype up the tension, but also maybe hide some of the gore. They don't really do that in this one. These traps linger. We'll get to that in the spoiler section. And these traps really got under my skin. Pardon the pun. Um, and I think that's where this movie shines. It takes its time. I was surprised to see that this actually has a very, I'm, I'm not going to name the website, but critics have even taken to liking this one. And as I'm looking at a lot of the snippets, I get why. This isn't one that's just focused on the traps. They haven't always been. They've always had this almost soap opera level of endearing quality to them. But their selling point was always the traps. And some of those later sequels, they probably felt forced to include a bunch more. Here, so much more is put on the philosophy and the drama behind Kramer being screwed over by these people and wanting, and, and also the, the threat of you have this, this former addict in Amanda young seeing that, and maybe some of these other challenges and being like, Hey, maybe they shouldn't get it as hard. And that gives a nice different, fresh feel without changing too much. And for that, I did come away satisfied. And as I've gotten a few days away from my screening, some of my issues, which I'll get to in maybe the spoiler section, I've softened on. And again, just like some of the issues with those later sequels, it's kind of the endearing part of the Saw franchise that even when this one gets ridiculous, that gets part of the fun. And I've got to say, you, you mentioned some of the, the DPs and the productions. This is the best looking movie. And I'm going to say best looking in the sense that they were able to make shoot it so it looks great but also not lose the grittiness because even though I, I do have a soft spot for saw 3d the final chapter and jigsaw the biggest issue with those two movies is they're way too polished they lose 
all of the grit and the grime that makes Saw and that hurts their atmosphere. This one still looks polished because as much as I love that first movie, going back and rewatching it, it doesn't always look that good. Uh, it's very grainy and sometimes it works against it. But this one, they're able to make it look like a polished high-end production, but still retain the grittiness of this abandoned warehouse in Mexico City. And also... Good on them for not just doing the yellow filter. I know I think we're getting away from that now because it's become such a meme online, especially because of Breaking Brad. Or sorry, Breaking Bad. I'm never going to not call it Breaking huh? Brad now because it's not a bomb. <laughs> yes. But like it was always like, oh, you know, you're in Mexico because we have this garish yellow filter of, like, of Mexico. is So you know we're in Mexico because God forbid it just is filmed like a regular place. They don't do that here. And I really like the way that this film looked. And I even though I had some reservations with some of the pacing issues and that I liked the fact that they tried to do something different without changing the formula too much. And I really think making this a much more personal story really involved me more than some of those later sequels did. Cause I'll be honest, even though I enjoy all of them at like, I would say four through four through seven, but I'd exclude six. Cause I do really like six. They're fun, but they really start to blend together. And maybe that's why I, I'm not as crazy about detective Hoffman as a lot of people are, because even though I love the actor, I think he gets unfortunately saddled with some of the more lesser of the sequels. Um, but yeah, so this is a long winded way for me to say the nostalgia still kicked in. I felt like I was back in high school again, catching some of these movies, especially since we're, you know, in that bridge between Saul one and two, and then going into three, uh, and yeah, I think, I think this delivers, uh, I'm not surprised. I'm happy to see a lot of fans really are taking to it. And I think on more revisits, uh, I'm going to rank it possibly even higher. Cause right now I'd say it's maybe in the middle of the franchise, but I could see it creeping up because Tobin Bell, especially, oh my God, he, we've used this word before. He's a revelation in this. And I already love this actor, but dear Lord, it's, I'll get into maybe why that almost becomes a problem, but they still pull this off. This is a really good on Kevin Grutert. I always going to mispronounce his name for pulling off a really tricky tight rope because you, you really are humanizing jigsaw more than any of the other movies, but you're still retaining why he is a hypocritical madman, which is what makes him so fascinating. So it's a watch for me, even if I do have some reservations. So I'll just come out and, and echo your sentiments, which is I found this to be incredibly satisfying as a Saw fan, because I also have the same connection to this series that um, that you do as well. Um, I will be honest that when Beyond the First Trilogy, which I think was a really great sort of closed loop, yeah, the sequels have kind of been a little lackluster. They've been a little soap opera-y. Um, the introduction of, uh, I'll say, two apprentices. Um, I'm looking at Saw 4 and Saw 3D. Um, <laughs> um, it, it did get a little soap opera-y. The, rec the retconning almost became an eye-rolling kind of thing. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned Saw 6 because... Out of all of the sequels, you were talking about in this one about how you really felt for some of the victims in the traps. Out of all of the sequels, I think Saw 3, which involved a gentleman whose son was killed by a drunk driver, um, going through a series of traps that involved the people um, involved in this accident that took away his son, that one and then 6, which involved... <laughs> Um, I, I know I'm giggling by saying it, 
because it's pretty grisly, but it involved like predatory lenders and the heads of like big pharma and insurance. Those two were the most, I would say, pointed in terms of their social commentary as well as their emotionality. I rewatched Saw 3 and I kind of wanted to vomit from some of the really high emotions that that actor Angus McFadden goes through over the the death of his son and these people. Do you save them or do you keep the hatred going? And I think that that's what's really sort of interesting about Jigsaw or the John Kramer character is that, yes, he could be charged with conspiracy to murder, but it, it as they say in all of the films and as he says in his I want to play a game tagline, um, you know, intro that he does, it's your choice, right? So he's like, you can either die horribly or you can kind of sort of get your way to dying horribly and survive. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So again, the, I think those, out of all the sequels, those are the ones that are the strongest, but just like a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street, like, I just, I love it. I love, I love the traps. I love figuring out the quote-unquote jigsaw puzzle about how all of the people in the trap are related to each other, and ha- more importantly, how are they related to jigsaw, and then the third component, how's he pulling all of this off, right? Um, it did get a little soap opera because we... You know, as the movies went on, we met his wife, we met, you know, people, people that he, you know, uh, sort of maybe grew up with or what, or, you know, tangential people like his dentist. That's the joke we were (laughs) talking about, you know, Um, fast X. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who were like involved in all of this. But um, and now I'm rambling. But what I'm going to say is this is I think in order to keep people who love the franchise and then bring in new viewers, you need to reinvent yourself. Um, almost like, and this is strange, I have a Madonna picture up on my above my computer, but almost like Madonna, right? Each album that comes out, she consistently reinvents herself. And I think that the Saw franchise got to this point where it was just a rote slasher, even though it's not really a slasher, okay? What I loved about this film and I found incredibly satisfying was that it completely pivoted the perspective. Um, You are correct. This is the most that we have ever seen Tobin Bell acting or Shawnee Smith acting in these films. Although arguably Smith anchored Saw 3, which is another reason why that particular film is great because she's amazing in Saw 3. But um, you get more acting out of them and they just hit it out of the park. I mean, for this kind of film, I'm not going to say they they went Shakespeare, but they their performances certainly elevate this from a simple torture porn film, which is what I was essentially expecting. I, I had seen this with Randy, and we were basically expecting it to be like all the other sequels. Well, imagine my surprise when, as you said, they almost begin to humanize John Kramer. And I'm like, what am I watching? But... At the same time, I thought it was a very ballsy approach, especially considering that just look around at some of the more popular films or television shows, they all involve anti-heroes, right? People who are not so perfect, they may be damaged, they may be corrupt, um, but they're trying to do good. They're trying to affect the world. They're just doing it in really horrible ways, right? Um, I'm thinking of like, uh, the series Hannibal or even uh, The Shield, which involved a, a corrupt cop. Um, 
So the way the way that they refashion this and when we go into it with John Kramer as the lead character, I was like, whoa, that's first of all, that approach is pretty interesting. I agree with you. It takes a while for the setup. And I'm kind of like, okay, because I saw the trailer, it spoiled everything. I know he gets I know he gets conned, he loses his money, yeah. where are the traps, what's going on? And honestly, even if you didn't see the trailer, not to cut you off, I still think you would assume that because we're in a Saw movie. Like, of course, exactly. you know, like it's it's there's some stuff in here where I think they're meant to be twists. And it's like, well, if you've seen a Saw movie and if you're coming to Saw X, you have. They're kind of foregone conclusions. <laughs> they are. And so what's interesting about that, too, is that as a longtime fan, uh, I was just kind of curious watching the uh, the opening and the proceedings and being like, where are they going to go with this? What like what what eventually is going to happen? What's the whole ruse or whatever? And then, obviously, I was I did not know this, but well, I did know it because I saw the fucking trailer and it ruined it. But when Shawnee Smith shows up, I was like, oh man, yes, right. Um, but then it turned into something. What I thought was going to be basically John Kramer getting back at people and being like, yes, die violently, it turned into – it almost felt like a like a play, like a grisly horror play where you start to discover, okay, the people that he's trapped, they are not so perfect. And then it becomes this bizarre thing where it's almost like – I don't like any of the people in this fucking room <laughs> and what the hell is going to happen. And then, you know, these things develop. And, and so I just, I don't know. I, I bought into all of it, even as a longtime Saw fan, even with the pacing issues, I bought into it. And if you are not a Saw fan, we've talked about this before with other films we've reviewed. Even if you don't have a history with the Saw films, go and see this. I mean, maybe the Saw X moniker is almost like, it's almost like X marks the spot we're restarting in some ways, I guess. That's how it feels, even though this is kind of a prequel. Um, but I just bought into it. And I think even if you haven't seen a Saw film, you're going to get a lot of tension, a lot of suspense, a lot of, oh my God, who am I supposed to root for here? And then there becomes a very obvious answer as to who to root for as as the characters get revealed. And I just think it was a really, really good thriller, a reinvention of the franchise. Groydert and Matthews, I mean, they directed the hell out of this, shot the hell out of this. I mean, literally, that set where they're all kind of stuck, which gives it that sort of chamber piece or play mm -hmm. feel, um, it reminded me of like the Freddy Hell set from Nightmare on Elm Street 3 um, in the respect that it almost looks hellish. It looks like something yeah. out of Dante. And I, you know, because there's these little corners where there's traps and there's bodies and like heads and things like that. And you're just kind of like, oh my God, it's hell. They're in hell. Yeah, and, and that's where they can get like, and it's still not as egregious as you would see in other filters, but the way that this, the, the warehouse is lit, that's where you get that like yellowish hue, but it's almost like it almost goes in that orangish yellow that you would see from flames, which I think yeah. definitely gives, gives that hellish vibe. 
And I think not doing a lot of that kinetic editing for the most part also helped with the claustrophobia because some of those later sequels, they because they're all claustrophobic. You're always stuck somewhere, but you start to lose it. And as somebody who does have claustrophobia, that was one of the reasons. I mean, I the positive thing about seeing the first one on video instead of in the theater was I watched it in a dark room by myself and felt like I was in that bathroom with them. Yes. And that's one thing that is hard to duplicate. But that first one really stands out still because it's so... Intense, like it, it's it's so intense it makes you sweat because you're just trapped in this little location. And here, that they they once again found like the warehouse to not just be a set piece; it's a character in and of itself. Yeah, um, that really almost kind of drives you mad. Well, just like we talked about Equalizer three, just like how its previous sequel had sort of like opened up this world and this universe. They were very wise with this one to be like, okay, enough with the retconning. Let's make it smaller again. Mm -hmm. Let's make it more integral and get to know some of these characters and then just toss the audience around as to who to root for or or are any of these people redeemable in any way. Um, So I just I loved that. I absolutely bought into all of it and loved it. Yeah, and as far as like retconning goes, obviously including new things that you wanted to, this is definitely the most believable. We we might get on this. There's still some aspects like uh, that does get that ridiculous but endearing spot that is what the sale franchise is known for. But I do think, like you said, by keeping it simple, um, and I think they have leeway because somebody had said. There's actually, I think, six months between Saw and Saw 2. So as they're probably going to do a Saw 11 and they might just keep doing these prequels between Saw 1 and 2, you could probably get that argument of there's more time in between than we realized. Mm-hmm. But it makes it easier because uh, as much as I have a Saw spot for Jigsaw and I caught it on a really good night, even my friend and I, when we came out of the theater, were like, the twist for that movie was really stupid because you're supposed to think it's a, a Jigsaw copycat. And it turns out it is, but the traps we were watching was actually Jigsaw's very first traps. But it doesn't make a fucking lick of sense because not only are there monitors that are clearly modern, not like from 2002, 2003, 2004, all of the traps in Jigsaw were very intricate. So I'm like, why would his first traps be these masterpieces? And then he goes down to more grounded. And this one gets around that too, because you're thinking, well, this is between Saul and Saul too. Like those traps, you know, were much more, I guess grounded is the best word to say. They weren't as elaborate. They yes. would definitely get there with two and three, but they were still, I think, within a, a realm of at least possibility of plausibility. And this one actually is, since all of them are, you know, medical themed, and you can kind of tell he's probably just grabbed these from local areas. They're still a little bit ridiculous, but I'm like, I, I can believe most of these at this time period where he's at between one and two, where he's getting a little bit better with his traps, that he could rig these up as opposed to some of the ones like you see in Jigsaw. They're fun to watch, but I'm like, no fucking way he pulled this shit off. And you still get that a little bit here, but. Well, um, they do. Uh, and we'll save this for the spoiler section. Yeah. There are two tip offs that there's more than just Amanda helping him with this. Yeah. And um, the other thing I also wanted to say, and then we'll segue to the spoiler section, um, is that if you are a fan of the Saw franchise and particularly one through three, the interactions between Smith and Bell here set up what eventually is the full character arc for Amanda through one and three, but they're not super, super obvious about that. 
but they use it in a way that creates internal conflict between the villains of the piece or the antiheroes of the piece. And I found that to be, um, I'm going to use the term masterful. I found that to be a, a sort of masterful re-perspectivizing of these characters given the prior films and then even looking at it at, through new eyes. Um, and yes, her haircut is that way for a particular reason. Please see Saw 2. Yes, I know it is. Still, <laughs> holy. Um, but, I think maybe yeah, it's, it's, it's miserable. Also, the I, weird, they did a little weird de-aging on her. And so think, every time I looked at her, I was like, what's going on? <laughs> I think it was a mixture of the every now and then seeing that de-aging mixed with the haircut. They just, they were a little bit too wacky for me. But I'm glad you, because I did want to bring <laughs> that back up before I go. Uh, into the spoilers because as much as I'm praising Tobin Bell and he deserves it, she's just as good as this. And I think that's where the writing actually shines because I think some of the other stuff in the buildup works because of the performances, even if like the script itself is pretty uh, pat and threadbare, but you know, sometimes it's all you need, but here's where I think it works and why I think Gruder was able to pull this off is you do have all these unlikable characters, but you have that dynamic between Kramer and Amanda and when you get it with some of her characters and her beliefs of like, well, maybe some of these people didn't really have a choice and he has to remind her, well, look what I did for you, you know, so you get that, you can see why. And I think it makes clear some of the later sequels, because sometimes people are like, well, some of these traps in these later sequels didn't seem winnable. I'm like, well, yeah, well, they were like Hoffman or maybe or a lot of them were just Hoffman who was, you know, as you see in flashbacks, he was losing it and he wasn't following the philosophy of you still have to give them, even if it's just a small percentage of a chance, you still need to give that to them. But And I think that's where this really works and you get some really great emotional moments between the two, but that also ends up elevating the, the on paper really detestable characters in these traps and gives you that perspective of well maybe some of them you can see where their perspectives are coming with Amanda and I think it also pronounces because this is so personal that's why even though Jigsaw's philosophy of giving them a chance still exists there, there's arguments and we'll get to it in the spoilers but did they have really have enough time to survive some of these traps and there's a part of me that thinks well that's probably intentional because Kramer is dealing with the all these other ones, sometimes they've been personal, but they've never been as personal as this. Like, there's a reason why he's in the room with them a lot of times because they've already seen him. He wants them to know what you did to me and others. So you get the feeling that as he's getting closer to his death and his mind is going more, he needed that balance of Amanda who can be like, listen, you're almost losing sight of your own philosophy here because of your personal vendetta against these, these people. And I like that dynamic. And I think that's where... And the only thing I wish that would have worked as much as I love seeing them is I wish we would have still seen a bit more of the other characters without uh, Amanda and John there. Uh, because a lot of times we'll go up to them kind of talking things through and then we won't really go down to the floor until they're back into the game. I wish we could have gotten a little bit more of that, but I also think that was intentional because we'll get there with a spoiler. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for me, it's definitely it's definitely a watch. I yeah. was incredibly satisfied by it and uh like i said i bought into it i i loved it yeah it's a watch for me as well as a big saw fan it's like i said even if it's probably number four or five i'd say maybe four or five i think it's honestly the only ones i'd put above it are definitely the first three and then saw six because i really like saw six and as i rewatch these a lot saw six is rising up much higher for me but I'd say it's definitely above and sticks out more than some of the other ones. I know it's fresh oh, yeah. in our minds, but I do feel like its approach sets it apart and will continue 
to do so in the future. I'm not going to, you know, if we get a bunch more of these, which we probably will, I'm not going to be like, well, which one was, am I confusing Saul X with Saul, you know, five or six? I don't think that's going to happen. Like I do yeah. sometimes with Saul four and five. I always forget. I always think Saul five opens the way Saul four opens. And that's with the hear no evil, see no evil trap. And every time I like go back to rewatch four, I'm like, Oh shit, that's right. This is, this is how four starts. Not five. Yes. And, and again, six, six, they finally contextualized it with current society. And I think that's what makes it so memorable. Um, Mm -hmm. Also it fashions John as kind of, um, as kind of a crusader or an anti-hero yeah. um, more, so also, than, more so than any of the other ones. Um, and including this one, I guess. Yeah. And you also get uh, backwards baseball cap. Jigsaw and Salt Six, which is the best. Yeah. Uh, we so won't go there. Amazing. So, yeah, okay. so if you have not, <laughs> if you have not seen Saw X, then we are about to spoil the Shazaz Saw's ass out of it in Ooh. three, two, one. Uh, okay, first of all, I will mark my disappointment that the poster with the with the eye things or whatever was simply just a fantasy of yeah. John's in the film. I mean, I kind of liked that they went there because it shows how, in addition to John doodling, which curiously enough, he doodles the trap that eventually kills the drunk driver guy in Saw 3. He's a... Uh, drafting it if you will but i kind of like that that you know they built up this aesthetic that like john just sees people doing doing bad things and then he immediately thinks of traps to like fuck them over um which i I thought was kind of comical i i found that yeah but it also i mean look if you're going to set up how somebody feels about these things it's weird i the way that this is written i think it it takes that approach of we have to do this for the fans, but we also need to do it for people who maybe have never seen Saw and just want to jump in right now with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's curious for me as a fan seeing that I laughed, but then if you haven't seen the other films, it sets up the later proceedings. Mm-hmm. And what, and um, do you I'm think they juggled ha- that well enough? You know, it's funny. I think I had the exact same reaction you did because I almost felt cheated for some reason. You know, when <laughs> yes. we saw the, the trap technically go to its completion, uh, I felt like, oh, so it wasn't a real trap. But then I did think, I'm like, okay, I do like the fact that we're kind of seeing his perspective. I, I get it in the sense that it's also, it's a cop-out for a reason. Of they were probably told, hey, you only have really like four to five traps, I guess, and a lot of them were contained later. We need to give the crowd something. So I'm sure some of that played into it. But if you have to do it, I did kind of like, and it's comical, but I think that's where the gallows humor comes in. Because there's times where even with my crowd, we were kind of laughing. But oh, it was yeah. that awkward awkward laughter for the most part where it's like <laughs> you know yeah. and, and it was because it's kind of funny that like all, he sees this uh janitor you know stealing from this patient and he immediately sees well this patient has these you know uh uh his hands are in this little like uh basically kind of like a medical glove to hold them up because he was in an accident so he's not like moving his hands and since this guy's stealing and he's a janitor he immediately imagines well i'm going to put him in a trap where his hands are in that same glove but he has to turn a dial so it snaps him up and then his eyes are attached to this vacuum cleaner that he's going and i also love because as it really highlighted how personal this movie was going to be because when he says in the trap I do not like what I see. Even I was like, dude, daddy jigsaw is disappointed in me. This is, yeah. <laughs> like, you never hear that much venom in his voice. And that really kind of just, I thought showed how in that moment 
even when it was somebody who compared to a lot of the other crimes, yes, stealing from somebody who's in a comatose state is a terrible thing to do. But is it, I mean, again, most people, arguably none of the people deserve to be in a salt trap, but that one, considering all the people that have been in them is very chump change, if you will. Uh, but it shows where his mindset was at at that point. He's already coming out and learning that he's going to die very shortly. Um, and, you know, but it's weird to see that twisted because, like, so he does just view everyone as that. Even though we get the humanized, you know, John Kramer, who is very sweet to people that are nice to him, you get that vibe of, like, this is a man at a spot where he's, it's almost like he's bipolar, where he can snap on an instant. And all he sees is a guy stealing something, and he has this diabolical trap set up where his eyes get sucked out and we see it. And then, uh, and again, it's still kind of funny when the guy sees Kramer and then he puts it back and John just goes up. Good choice. It's just like the yes. way it's sold. It's kind of funny, but it works. So in the moment, I was kind of feeling cheated. But as I've gone out, like that's one of the things where I'm like, I think my initial liking of the movie, but a little bit hesitant, is going to, I think, grow to more affinity for this. Because I think as I review in my mind why they made some of these choices, I kind of like them. And that was one where I'm like, okay, I'm fine with it here. It's it's a much better cop-out than the one we got in Saw 3D with his wife dying, because that was so comical and it was just being a nightmare. At least this it had a purpose. It wasn't just a cheap nightmare. It was, oh, we're seeing the, the mind of a madman. So, I think that that little fantastical sort of like vengeful kind of thing, it is a setup because... This this whole entire thing is completely his revenge, mm-hmm. and um, you know even even putting the traps and stuff like that in uh, uh, or, or what he does here in the context of the other films. I think the reason why this works again is that is that restructuring of him being the basic character that we see the story through, but also that this is essentially a revenge exploit a revenge exploitation film wrapped up in the soft theme because um you mentioned this before the traps with the other people who were the sort of tangential people who helped to set up the con they were not winnable um and so what we've mentioned before is that in the other films uh there was a detective who who um was revealed later to be an apprentice of John, this detective Marcus Hoffman, played by Costas Mandalore, who is incredibly sexy. Um, but, you know, uh, Hoffman was creating these traps, basically, that were unwinnable because he was just sort of bloodthirsty and not really following John's whatever, but trying to carry on his legacy. Because that's what the apprentices do. The apprentices sort of carry on John's legacy Um but unfortunately, in Saw 3, Amanda broke the rules. She became rather bloodlusty and was murdering people. And so unfortunately, she ends up um, getting killed in front of Kramer in Saw 3. Um, but here, this is really, you know, the traps were not winnable. And it was essentially his bloodlust for revenge. Well, one was. One was. But two, two, I think there's been arguments online, were technically winnable. But the three minute time frame made them almost impossible to win because by the time they pull it off, they now have to wait for because both of them the were dissolving one, or the dissolving. The, yeah. One is getting the bone marrow from the leg and it dissolves enough time to get the key. The other one is the piece of brain dissolving. Yeah. And but again, I, I think that it works because it's meant to almost be like, 
yeah, if this was if they didn't wrong him so personally, they probably wouldn't have gotten these specific traps. But if they did, they probably would have been given five minutes because that would have been a little bit more. But he's quick to be like, don't hesitate when he knows they're going to hesitate and lose that first minute. So but the, the Gabriella one- kill. Yeah, I think that one was the salt. That one was the out of all of them. That was the easiest one to survive because all she had to do was break free of two spots. And you can tell that even though he was probably most slighted by her because he really took to liking her as this just sweet lady between him kind of still maybe having those that fondness for and knowing that she has an addiction and was really just roped into this. You also had Amanda like pushing her trap later. So uh, you feel like. Her trap, which is being hung up uh, in front of a radiation machine, and she has to break free of the chains, her one hand and her one foot. She has to basically break them to drop down. She would have survived if they would have immediately got her to the hospital, which was their goal. And we'll get to why they don't. Uh, and maybe if they didn't switch it, she probably would have maybe been able to make it. But she was the only one out of those where it's like, okay, she had a good chance of winning. Because um, Mateo and Valentina really did not. Like, no. they could they have? Maybe, but not. It's a it, tightrope within three minutes, and they would have had to have known what to do immediately as the time went off. Yeah. But again, it works this time. And it also works because then it kind of explains why Hoffman and even Amanda, obviously, they could be bloodthirsty without it, but they can also, in their mind, go, Well, John, you were a hypocrite at one point. I mean, you've always kind of been, yeah. but you were a hypocrite with this personal vendetta. Why can't we? So I love, I love that, you know, um, um, Amanda identifying with Gabriella being an addict and telling John, you know, why are you going after her? You know, uh, there's drugs and things that make people vulnerable and, and act in a way so that they can chase their dragons, you know, etc. Um, so it's, it's, I love that that dovetails with Amanda's arc through one and three about how she starts to question John's philosophy and then strays from that. I really, really mm-hmm. dug that. And obviously the, the uh, sort of um, spoiler in the room that we're going to talk about now is they did bring back Hoffman, um, which I, I knew they had to because it's revealed that Amanda helped abduct the people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. Before that happens, John picks up the phone and he says, detective, Mm -hmm. I have some people, I need you to whatever, whatever. And then we see Amanda, but we all know Amanda's not a detective. So again, they're they're doing that weird, you know, we're writing for the fans, but we're also writing for newbies, right? Yeah, Um, but but it also makes it kind of interesting because it telegraphs it way too much. Like if you've seen these movies, you know Halton's going to have to play some part because we know that. But for a newbie... I, 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 the person behind me, one of them I was either a newbie or forgot who Hoffman was. And he didn't like hate the twist, but when they showed him in the post credit scene, he was just like, okay, it's just a detective. So I think that almost kind of falls flat because since he's not a character you see throughout, that's not, if you're new to this franchise, that's not really a twist. It's just some random dude. Yes. But that stinger with Michael Beach, Michael Beach is the cancer victim who, um, seeds the con basically by saying oh i went to these people and i got healed from cancer or whatever and it's funny because as it's going through i was thinking to myself where the fuck is michael beach why isn't he in one of these traps and sure enough the po- the mid credit stinger is that uh beach is strung up and he's got this bizarro freddy krueger-esque thing that's going to tear through his stomach and um hoffman is there as as the apprentice basically um which the other thing I was alluding to was that Carrie Elwes 
eventually shows up again in Saw 3D, the final chapter, and is revealed to be an apprentice who had been helping John all along. Um, actually, I think, um, I don't know if people know this, but uh, Elwes had sued Twisted Pictures saying that he was promised profits, which is why he never mm-hmm. appeared in any of the other sequels. But apparently they patched it up and maybe Elvis yeah. was like, I need some money. Put me in this uh, I think it was a mixture of patching it up, and they probably also gave him a very nice paycheck to appear in Saw 3D, because by that point, even though they're still cheap to make, I'm pretty sure that was probably one of the more higher-budgeted ones. I mean, it had to be if you were going to film in 3D. That adds a couple extra costs. But yeah, Yeah. I think that's what had happened. That was one of those twists that I, like a lot of fans, just thought was... It was like, okay, come on. Every single person, like, he has to now be an apprentice. Like, I think maybe if you would have introduced that sooner, we would have been fine with it. But by the seventh film, I'm just like, this is getting kind of (laughs) dumb. And true, true. But um, but yeah, so I think that those traps were unwinnable because his ultimate goal was to get Stephen Brand, uh, who is the man who was helping him out, who posed as like a patient who was like, oh, I'm being healed or whatever. Um, but I really love that about the screenplay is that it, it sort of uh, gives us this, is Brand somebody who got taken? by the con or is he part of this and i will be honest up until there's the reveal i did not realize um i thought that maybe brand was somebody who had been cheated and so when the reveal comes i go oh my god so he's in on it <laughs> i figured he was in on it right away only because he was able to find the building and they made a big note that like obviously they did this really crazy abduction out of the cab and then be like, well we can't let people know and granted, you could still believe if he was a victim, he could have done the same thing Jigsaw did and retraced some of his steps from the cab ride. But the fact that they made such a big deal out of John having to be very smart to figure that out and this guy was able to figure it out and it's like pounding on the door. My first thought was like, oh, is he just in on this? And maybe he's he's working with like he worked with them and is trying to save them. And that is actually, ultimately the twist. So actually, I was just going to say to you, um, I was about to flag the screenplay as being um, illogical and horrible because John shows up at the warehouse, or I'm sorry, shows back up at the house and gets out of the taxi. And then obviously everything is gone. Gabriella is not there. He wants to give, bring this gift to Gabriella, though. The, and the the bottom level where all the surgery stuff is is it's all missing. It's gone. Um, and I was like, how did he find that if they went through this whole thing about being abducted and this, the location was secret? Later in the film, when he's before he starts to torture Diego, the taxi guy, he says, you showed me where the – you told me where the plan was or mm-hmm. where, where the location was. Now you're going to tell me XXX. Mm-hmm. And so I think the reason why maybe they took that out is to build the tension about Brand – like, mm. did he just figure it out like John did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in a, in a way, that was a little bit of a cheat. Um, yeah. Because and, and, I think if you were paying attention. <laughs> and yeah. to be fair, uh, it's, it's hard for any of these Saw movies not to sometimes have that. Because the ultimate twist here is that, yeah, Cecilia and uh, Sears, who is this other gentleman that you were mentioning that's in on it, they were, you know, they're – despicable human beings who are not just robbing obviously all of these uh, pa- cancer patients but they're using the the other victims like they're barely paying them gabrielle could have survived but she snapped she stepped and broke her neck with her heels and they put 
John and Amanda into certain traps, and then they bring in Celia brings in a child that John had liked at one point and just happens to be kicking the ball at the right time. And there's a part here where it almost started to fall apart. But again, as I kind of looked back on it, there's two reasons I'm I'm a little bit more fine with the, these ultimate twists. And one, I do like the ridiculousness of these series. Like in the moment when I saw some of those later sequels, the the soap opera stuff made me roll my eyes. But now as I rewatch them, like it's kind of fun. Like it's kind of, it's endearing in a way of like, it's endearing how much this series, instead of just going, well, here's an apprentice and they're doing traps. They're like, we're going to try to find a way to connect all of this. And I'm like, you're overthinking it. And, but in hindsight, I'm like, I kind of love the fact that you are, but I think the more I think about this and I read theories online, because at first I'm like, how was any of this supposed to work? Because the ultimate trap that Cecilia and Sears have to face is when they go up to the control room that, John and Amanda have been controlling everything. And when they go to grab all the money, the bag, the doors lock, a bunch of gas comes in like toxic gas. And only one of them can survive by sticking their head out of what looks like if you've ever gotten those big jugs of water, it looks like the opening to one of those. So it's like, well, or a big glory hole. Or a big glory hole, yeah. It's basically what they are. It looks like a very prolapsed anus. Um, but, but it's like the only way this works is if John and somebody else was in this trap because even Sears says, well, hold up a second, Cecilia. If this was your trap, this, water, this bloodboarding, basically a waterboard where it's two people where you're on a seesaw and one of them is pulling the lever so only one person can survive. And at first I was like, well, I guess it was supposed to be those two because we know through the reveal that, you know, they knew Sears was in on it and they were the ones that rigged it that, they knew that Cecilia would call him and come. So they set it up like, which by the way, really grisly in another gallows humor moment where she digs out the intestines from Valentina to use as a rope to pull oh, the cart with her. Oh my God. My God. That, and this was the one that only I laughed at. And I don't know if it was meant to be gallows humor, but Gabriella's trap where she's hung up and the radiation machines burning her. She breaks her foot. So she swings away from it and you're like, Oh my God, she survived. And then the, the radiation machine slowly goes towards her. Oh my like, God. That was too much. I was I like, laughed, ah. I laughed at that, but that was the laugh of like, Oh, come on this poor girl. Like you think yeah. she's got to beat like, uh, 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 but like, so this whole last trap, it doesn't really work because you know, the only way that this ultimate, like they had to plan for, you know, getting rid of the bullets net and for Cecilia and Sears to go up into this room. So then I was like, well, I think the idea was they just assumed that they knew they would turn the tables on them and that they would put John and Amanda in this trap. But then obviously the kid ended up being the wrinkle. Again, if you think about this too much, it's still too ridiculous because they have to, rip, you know, well, hope. I'm gonna... Cecilia and Sears are going to put them in this specific trap or something. Yes, they can't shoot them and kill them, but there's other ways they can kill them. But it's also one of those. I think the series kind of has fun with that and well, it just ultimately works. I'm, I'm going to defend Josh Stolberg and Pete Goldfinger by saying this. That was their backup plan. If they did not get, if they did not get them into the blood thing. Right. Okay. But here's the thing though. How do they, it's weird. I I get having that contingency plan, but would there, I guess there would there have been a way that they would have untripped that trap then? Because not just that, but you have to remember he had the pre-recording going also. So it's one of those things I'm willing to suspend my disbelief, but it's also you, it's, it's one of those things. Too many things have to go according to plan, even for this backup plan to work. Well, I know, but that's that was the backup plan, basically. <laughs> because they knew exactly where the money was. It was not in that room. But they made sure to let everybody know, 
it was in Here's there. the thing, though. What if only Cecilia would have went up? Then they both survive, right? Well, no, 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 no. Again, it's the contingency plan if the two of them can't go into the blood trap. What I am, what I am saying, though, is they did not get into that blood trap, correct? No. So John is on the blood trap. Let's just say instead of both of them going up to the room to get the money, yes. they just said, Cecilia, why don't you go get it? She grabs it. Only she gets locked in. Well, she can stick her head out like she did. And then but that would steers. but that would only be if she had survived the blood trap. But even what if I she am, survived the blood trap, I am, they would have killed her. If only one of them went into that office, even with them not being in that blood trap, when they say, hey, let's go get the money. What if only one of them went up instead of both? They both don't get trapped. John's still on the tr- in the, the blood trap. Yes, they could have easily gotten themselves out, which then kind of makes it rude to the kid. Or at least Shawnee Smith could have. But in order for that contingency plan to work, both of them have to be up in that office. If one of them is not, one of them can stick their head out, and then the other's not in the room anyway. That's what I'm saying. I know. And all I, and I know. And I think you get where I'm saying, which is if they don't bo- both die in the blood trap— or one of them survives and then John and Amanda kill the survivor, the backup plan is both of them go yes. up to grab the money. But but you know, what I'm just saying though, it's still one of those things of he's still it's I, I find it kind of endearing where it's like because you get the da na 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 and this is where we're ultimately very smart and outsmarted you, but that outsmarting only works if they worked according to your plan, and that contingency plan still only works if you expected them both to act or impulse and go up together. So it's still one of those. I, I know. But, 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 but my me, point is, my point is, is they, it would never get to the point where only one person would go up there. Why not? It did. If they didn't both go, they easily could have done that. They both didn't have to go up to that office. That's right, what but I'm not saying. If, not if they were both in the trap. <laughs> but uh, so, what I'm saying yeah. though, is the backup plan means they're not in the trap and they are not at the end. They are both standing there out that requires them both to go up to the room. If one of them would have just walked up to the room for that contingency plan to work, that plan doesn't work. He has to rely on them uh, both wanting to go up. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to keep repeating myself, but I don't know. And same with me. I, I, like I said, it's still fun, but I do think that it doesn't work because you have to guarantee that they're both going to go into the room together. Unless that's the way to leave. But even then, what? It, which we know it's not because they escape the building at the end. Uh jigsaw uh amanda and the 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 warrior kid yeah it's still fun i i'm saying that's part of the charm but it still shows that there's there's a ridiculousness of these any type of movie like this where it's like when you have these plans or contingency plans everything has to fall in place in order for stuff to work even when there are wrinkles those wrinkles still have to work in place yeah well i don't know i think i think goldberg goldfinger and whomever (laughs) i think they wrote it pretty well um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to address. Well, let's talk about the traps because we didn't really talk about them. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did not uh, like Valent- Valentina's was the hardest to watch. Yeah. So she hers. has to. So Valentina is in a trap where her head is going to be cut off unless she can take something called a Geely saw, which essentially looks like a Garrett, meaning if you've seen gangster films, it's the wire that they wrap around people's necks. But basically, it's 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 a wire that cuts through muscle and bone. And so she has to basically saw her own leg off, um, but she's doing it in sort of a furious sort of manner in the way that the saw works, uh, because again, it's just this wire with handles. Um, but her her sawing through that was 
it was so excruciating to watch. Um, it, I think, I can't remember any other traps that are excruciating to watch like that, but I think um, they all from the other their, films. Um, oh, from the films, yeah. I don't think any of them were as excruciating as this one. And I go back to what I said in the spoiler-free section of the way they shoot these traps, it lingers on them, but it yeah. doesn't even do it in, I mean, yeah, there's still your grisly gore, but they really linger on the the tension and the, tor- the pain that they have to, the more emotional struggle as much as it is the physical as yeah. opposed to just lingering on the leg itself being cut as opposed to like all the other movies always had that really kinetic editing which still comes every now and then especially when john figures out that you know uh he's been cheated so of course it does uh, crazy editing but i think that's what made these traps even more visceral is the fact that they just they let they let them they breathe, just shot basically. them yeah yeah um, they didn't so what what Red is talking about, if um, if you are listening to this because you've never seen the Saw films and you don't mind the spoilers, is that uh, James Wan and Darren Lynn Bozeman, for a lot of the films, set up this sort of theme where when somebody realizes that they're in a trap to sort of show that chaos both in your mind and what's happening, there was this very music video style thing where the camera is rotating, they're dropping frames out. So it kind of looks like, you know, their heads are moving really, really quickly, but it's really just frames being taken out of the shot um, with the jangly hard rock music and strings or whatever. So that became a theme of practically all of the films, but it is conspicuously absent in the the way that they would normally deploy that kind of like filming to be sure there is some of that in here. Like I think when the people get abducted and there's like the pig Mm -hmm. masks, um, you do get a little bit of that, but yeah, I think shooting it, just having it the way it is with no restraint and just the violence of it was really, really tough to watch. A lot of the traps actually. Yeah. The the brain one. uh, So Mateo's was that he had to pick out a piece. He had to open up his head and pick out a piece of brain kind of given, make you think of Hannibal. And then he had to drop it into a tank. So it would dissolve and release the key. Uh, and he wasn't able to do it in time. And then his actual death is he has this and they telegraphed it when they were talking about uh, some of the, the culture of, you know, Mexican culture and the, the death mask, basically, yeah. where this mask shuts on him and it burned, incinerates his face. Now, we don't see the incineration, but just hearing him wailing was terrifying, yeah. which is also a callback to um, Saw 2 opens with the reverse of the reverse bear trap, which is um you know, it's it's a, essentially a bear trap mask that has all these spikes. And the guy mm-hmm. in the beginning of the film, he has to cut his own eye open to get the key to unlock it. And then it shuts and you just kind of like see his eyes and then all the blood starts coming out of the, the mask. So there's yeah. um, it, it's funny. I read the director saying that they they claim that the mid credit stinger was the most, quote unquote, fan survey they got with the film. Um, and I kind of challenge that because there are callbacks that I think are fan survey or in fan service. I think what he's coming off and I would agree with is in the sense that while there are a lot of callbacks, that one's the most blatant. It's just both Hoffman coming into frame and that, and then, you know, still showing it. I, I could see where he's coming from. I, it, it's still, I mean, fan service being fan service isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as you write it well. And for the yeah, most yeah, part, yeah. they write it well. That's uh, the whole point of doing a sequel is you, you need to satisfy what has come before. 
uh, and build upon that, which is fan service in and of itself. The the issue is just when it it feels hollow. And I think in this case, it didn't. None of it really ever felt hollow. Um, I also I do love some of the goofiness of like John still having the tapes or like Billy the puppet. I love the idea oh, that Amanda God. had to go through customs with Billy the puppet just so he could <laughs> yes. wheel in the uh, the the tools that Mateo would have to use. Or like I loved when. So when Diego gets trapped and wakes up and he has these two uh, basically kind of like pipe bombs trapped to his hand and he has to, you know, pry them off so they don't explode on him. And that's how he gets you know information. He sees John and like and he's pounding on the window. It's like John talking and then the, the, the tape drops down and John keeps looking at it. And he has to play this tape of John talking and telling him the rules. And I'm just like, I can imagine John going. <laughs> Listen, I worked really hard on this. Can you can you please just play the tape? Can you Come just to play it? I put a lot of man hours into writing the script. You took so much from me already. Just play my tape, please. <laughs> and then I loved when like Gabriella when she gets the tape and she just throws it like, no, I'm not going to listen. <laughs> he just goes over the loudspeaker. That's not going to work. You have to play the game. <laughs> uh, please pick up the recorder. Can you imagine how that would have worked in the other films with the traps and John oh, wasn't there? Ah, oh, shit, they didn't play it. Um, uh, but yeah, I I thought. I also like liked, what? I also like that addition in the screenplay where Gabriella was essentially like staring up at the Billy puppet and was like, nope, nope, not going to nope. do it. <laughs> no, <Nope>, move on. <laughs> also, whatever, like at least this one, it could have made sense if one of his traps failed because he's there to fix it. But like you said, on the ones where he's not in the room, what if like a trap just didn't work and like they didn't like, I know it, it has to happen in these movies, but like there's got to be a skit somewhere online somebody does where it's like you have to do like turn off this reverse bear trap and at the end it's supposed to go off and it just, it's a malfunction and it doesn't and then they just get out and yeah. you just hear, oh shit, uh, fuck, I thought I had this fixed. God damn it. <laughs> Because he has I to mean, also, he has to try these on, I guess, he doesn't have to try them on people. I'm assuming he's trying on, like, mannequins and, like, yes, uh, probably, like, watermelons and that, but, like, still. Oh, watermelons. Also, yeah. I know that it's, you know, supposed to be early 2000s and he's in Mexico City, but I do love this idea that this madman who still needs to be kind of concealing his identity is just out in the open drawing his fucking traps and then grabs, trashes one of them so somebody could just go into the trash can and be like, hey, this is that jigsaw fella. But I know, I've also, right? I'm going to say, even though his notoriety was getting pretty big at that point, I'm pretty sure most people in Mexico City wouldn't have really known. Would not have known. Was. Exactly. I just thought it was kind of funny to think on like, I just like the idea that he's this madman just out in public on a nice side day on a park bench just drawn as you know yeah kind of henry portrait of a serial killer-esque it is i yeah i love that like he's recuperating from this alleged like healing thing and he's still drawing the goddamn killer traps <laughs> now did you think the kid was too much so we mentioned it but basically John befriends a kid while he's at this uh, medical, supposed medical facility. He learns how to say uh, pull from him because he's trying to tell him how to, you know, fix his bike. But then the kid ends up coming near the end when they're, you know, which, by the way, I guess they well, no, they would have had to have once they figured out what the trap was. I'm sure they would have uh, made Amanda get into it. But instead of Amanda going into this blood board trap that John was planning on, this kid ends up coming he's kicking his ball outside and this shows how evil cecilia is that she's like yeah let's kill this kid and i thought sears was, sears looks like he wanted to protest but he didn't um yeah. 
But this kid, he tells him, don't pull. And this kid sees that John, after kind of being waterboarded himself, is getting waterboarded and decides, nah, 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 nah. I'm going to save this old man. So this, I, I, even I thought I liked it. And I loved when he's like, you, you're a fucking warrior. And he gives this kid the money. But there's yeah. this ridiculousness that I know it's, you know, maybe this kid came from a pretty bad background. But he walks into all of these dead bodies, these crazy ass traps. He doesn't speak English. He has no idea what they're saying. He's put into this trap where he's being told not to pull. He starts to realize he could be drowned in blood here. Then he sees John, this guy he met once that helped him fix a bike. He's like, ah, I'm going to risk my life for him. And then he's given millions of dollars at the end and they walk off happily. It's goofy, but I'm not going to lie. It worked for me. But it's it's one of those things that maybe at that point they humanize John just a little too much because he is still supposed to be a villain. But I'm not going to lie. I, well, I kind of got, I got well, caught up into it. Again, defending the Goldfinger, they showed us that even John has a limit as well. And so children True. are innocents. But um, children haven't been innocent in the past. They've ever been put in traps. And I don't think he would have killed them. But remember in the first movie, the children of uh elways his family are held hostage true true, true but true. we also but this we is also but two, yeah but two things one we don't actually know if he would have killed the children i have a feeling that john probably would have maybe killed the wife but not the children and was just using it as bait until as john says in this movie the kid's not part of this like at right. least in that one in his twist of mind the kids are part of it so i got it it's just for me it's one of those things of it's like don't make him so much of an anti-hero that we are supposed to because we're still supposed to ultimately not like this man or he's still supposed to be a villain he's supposed to be a warped human being you could have a shades of gray which is great but in this case it almost made it too black and white that he's actually a nice lovable dude when he's not yeah, he's he loves a- kids have him babysit for ya. But, um, <laughs> but, but again, sometimes this ridiculousness, and maybe it stuck out sometimes a little bit more in this one because it is so more visceral. But some of the ridiculousness, especially in hindsight, is part of the charm and the fun. And I like oh, it the is. fact. Absolutely. It, I do wish, though, that as much as I love when you get the reveal with the Hello Zep song, the downside here is since you didn't have that flashback narrative, there's still some things that they can show, like you, like you mentioned, how they knew Sears was coming and taking out the bullets, but there wasn't enough. And you can tell because there's long stretches there where there's not flashbacks happening. It's just the drawn out them reacting. Or we had to flash back to both of them saying, she's going to burn you, Sears. And I'm like, look, I get we have to flash back, but that literally just happened five minutes ago. Usually your flashbacks were like to an hour ago. Yeah. It feels a little redundant at this point when we literally just saw that happen <laughs> i will say i did roll my eyes a little bit when they walked out into the sunset yeah um, as their little nuclear family and that's where and that families families just the best semester slow more than the diesel <laughs> family but that's why it comes back to fast x the x movies are all about family and crazy twists and yeah and that goes where it's just it's a little bit too much but i don't know it was so goofy that it kind of worked for me yeah um and that's why i think i had sent you well, I guess it's a meme now, but I had sent you a, a, a photo from a tweet where somebody was praising Saw X. And the joke was, the guy said, it's going to finger your holes. So I said, my full holes were not fingered in my screening. I don't know what the <laughs> hell that guy was trying to say. But yes. you would also take into him saying it's, you know, a nice fitting end to the franchise. And you're right. How the hell can it be a fitting end if this is a prequel? I think what that guy was getting at is that they were to never make any more of these. This is a fitting end because even though we know they return and they die, this was... Kramer and them getting to walk off into the sunset, get a level of revenge and get their philosophy. So I can see where he's coming from. Even oh, if it's still, yeah, even now if it's I get still it. kind of ludicrous 
because now, it is again a prequel. Like there's, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to make a prequel and end, but I could see where that guy was coming from. Because especially because you get to see the most of Tobin Bell. So let's say if hopefully it's not, but let's say this is the last movie Tobin Bell ever makes. He says, I'm gonna retire or something. Yeah. And he never makes another movie. It's a nice way for him to go out on because it's so dramatic. For a second there, until I realized it was a prequel. Um, and that there's not a lot of time between Saws 1, 2, 3, and 4. I was like, is that is that Hoffman as a kid? And he's going to grow up and be like, <laughs> I'm going to serve you, John, because you saved my soccer ball. But Which, then I realized, no, that couldn't have that been. T- that timing wouldn't make sense. One, it would have to be a prequel. But two, it would have to be a prequel very long in the past because yeah, Hoffman is so much older than that kid. I know, by the- I know. And then I was like, no, fuck that. But uh, yeah, any other things? Thoughts? No, I, I enjoyed this. By like I said, I have criticisms with the pacing, and yes, some of the things have to happen. But that is a level that every Saw movie and any movie that has a twist, for the most part, especially elaborate. And again, sometimes that's part of the fun. And some of it, it was kind of fun that it still had to, everything had to go to according to plan. I think it just stuck out a little bit more in this viewing, just because this one was so grounded. Yeah. Uh, that that it, as opposed to some of the other ones, it's just you've already thrown so much ridiculous. It's still not the dumbest twist. The dumbest twist will definitely be Jigsaw because there's no way that was his first fucking games. I he had a fucking monitor at one point that was clearly from 2016. What the fuck are you talking about? That was set in 2002, 2003. Yeah. yeah. But it was still a fun movie. I enjoy all of these. I enjoyed this one. I definitely think uh it's going to rise uh, up my list in future viewings because it stands out. It's it's definitely a watch. Yeah. It's fresh approach. Not to bring up that stupid aggregate movie review website that you referenced earlier. Um, I didn't say the name, though. I know, I know. It is uh, it, it is a fresh take on it, and I found it incredibly satisfying, both as a Saw fan and looking it through the eyes of somebody who is not familiar with Saw. Um, I think it would be satisfying for either crowd. Uh, yeah, uh, so if we got this wrong... Um, or if you want to weigh in on whether or not this contingency plan would have worked regardless or all the different scenarios, or even if you have any maybe future theories about where this will go, because in a way the woman survived and they've created a antithesis or villain for John. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have f- future theories about where maybe the Saw franchise could go, you can certainly write us, uh, reach out to us on any of our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can also write us at watchskip plus spell out all the words at gmail.com. If you love us, you will certainly love our Podfathers, The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. We guested on them recently and reviewed Cannon's River of Death. Check that one out. Not a bomb. I recently guested on Breaking Brad. We took on Lindsay Lohan's Labor Pains. Um, and boy, did everybody hate that film. Um, you would also love our OG podfather, The Night of the Living podcast, as well as Daniel and David over at Wild Dream Podcast. Check out their It Lives Inside episode. It's hysterical. Uh, also, Death by DVD. We mentioned Harry on this podcast. Raiders of the podcast, Backlook Cinema podcast, VHS Files, Silver and Gold, Cult of Muscle, Feminine Critique, and Married with Clickers, and Red. Well, we hope that you make the right decision, that you never skip, you always listen, and you remember that you are the plus. You have three minutes, or you will die. 
I guess we could keep this in as the post credit stagger. I know we talked about how much we love Charlie Clauser's score, but again, this is one of the strongest points of this movie. Holy shit. I've listened to that score oh, a couple yeah. of times now. Oh, since. my God. So fucking good. Actually, so, I have a massive playlist on my YouTube music that mm-hmm. is all of the Saw um, nice. uh, scores. <laughs> and I actually listen to it while watching body camera and doing work, which... Ooh definitely gives you a fresh yeah i was listening to because they're all on a body camera hey you want to watch some tv or something skip it well i'm getting ready to watch a video really what nothing but foul language and toilet humor i'm disgusted and repulsed and and i can't look away This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Stop it! 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 Stop it!